glad to have you all here this morning, and we're continuing on in this class on uh, passing on the faith. What we're trying to do is consider uh, different aspects of our parenting and child rearing that would help us to be um, more effective about seeing our children uh, embrace and cling to the Christian faith. Now, um, today we're going to talk about, Mike's going to talk about educating your child. Now, obviously, um, he's the headmaster of at Lakeland Christian School, so he did not bring a packet of, of uh, application forms in today. He's not going to try to coerce everybody into that, but he is going to try to talk to you about some things, principles about education, and, and you need to have an educator talk to you about education, I think. Anyway, everybody comes with a certain um, worldview and a certain um, slant on it, and, um, so, and he has one. But the main one that he has is that it needs to be done from a Christian perspective. So I think you'll, you'll get the picture on that today, and that's what we want to get across. And so it'll be uh, <clears throat> my privilege to uh, have him come and teach this morning. <clears throat> let's, uh, let's open in prayer, and then uh, Dr. Sly will uh, take it over. I'm going to have to rely on hearsay on this class because I've got to teach in the orientation class today. So, Y'all behave yourselves and don't give me a bad report. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Thank you for the privilege of being in your house. We pray that you would um, give Mike clarity of thought and uh, help him to be able to express the things that he has prepared for today. Pray that you give um, each one in the class open and teachable hearts and uh, help it to be something that they can take and um, talk over with their spouse and um, discuss and, and um, try to be where you would have them to be in this important matter. We commit this time to you now this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. It's, it's working. It's on. <coughs> Good morning. We have some handouts on the tables if you don't have one. <clears throat> I noticed all our alumni are sitting in the back near the exits. <clears throat> Not sure what to make of that. But it's probably a good strategy. Uh, as Steve mentioned, it's my privilege to serve as a headmaster at Lakeland Christian School. And um, I spent my entire professional uh, life there. Um, and so I have uh, come to this whole education uh, topic with a uh, deep, lifelong uh, commitment to Christian schooling because that's where I've spent my life. But Christian education is a bigger issue than Christian schooling. Um, and for purposes of uh, 55 minutes left, uh, we can't talk about the whole thing. So most of my perspective for this class is going to deal with the uh, K-12 segment of education. We'll have to leave higher education for another conversation. Um, and uh, before 
K to another conversation. So I'm going to try to stay in the area where I have the most experience and perspective. So we're going to um, look at some really big picture ideas about the whole notion of how we educate our children. And then we're going to uh, take a little segment where we're going to talk philosophy for a while. And then we're going to uh, talk some nuts and bolts, wisdom gained from a group of teachers that I surveyed in preparation for today. And if we have time after that, <clears throat> shortly after lunch, we will <laughs> look at a couple of research studies that I find somewhat fascinating about uh, some things related to uh, how we work with our children and mistakes that we all make. Now, two weeks from now, I've got another segment on some perspective on preparing your child for the road. So my fudge factor is if I don't get finished today, I've got a backup plan coming up. So <clears throat> here we go. What's the goal of education anyway? What are we trying to accomplish? What do we want our children to, to take away from, from all the educational influences that are on their life when they uh, begin to emerge from our homes and head off into college or career? What do we want to be some things that are typical of their life? Well, obviously, to me, I think of the verse, Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, if you have something to write with, and I can't imagine anyone coming to class without something to write with, <laughs> you can fill these in if we go. If not, we'll see you in detention after the morning service. But... <clears throat> That whole heart, soul, mind, and strength includes both the intellect and the affection. I've been intrigued the last couple of years with how powerful our worldview is shaped by affection, even more significantly than by precept, which is a topic for another day. But <clears throat> our affections really cultivate our worldview, and so we're... When we're talking about educating our children, we're talking about educating their heart and their affections, helping, helping to shape what they love, not just what they think. When I, I talk about this with uh, parents at school, I have a, a, a bobblehead that I picked up at a St. Louis Cardinals game. Uh, you know, you elbow and fight through so you can be one of the first 25,000 to get one. <clears throat> and... What's it, when you think about those bobblehead figurines, <clears throat> what's the predominant character, what's the predominant piece of that structure? The head. They have this big head and this little bitty body. And sometimes uh, we think about uh, education as uh, it's all about the head. I have a professor friend who talks about students are more than a brain on a stick. <clears throat> okay? And if, if you've done much teaching, you know that, that you... Uh, <clears throat> When children have to get up and move, because that stick gets a little restless, if you don't. So it's a whole, the whole person here. So <clears throat> the affection's not just the head. To instill a biblical worldview that you want to be systemic and not just laminated. I had some azaleas that had a funny-looking growing thing on the leaves several years ago, and an uncharacteristically conscientious move. I went to the yeah, the uh, gardener at the ag station said, what do I do for this? And showed him the leaves. 
and I had a bunch of stuff that I thought I was going to spray on the plant to cure this problem. And what he told me I needed to do was get some other stuff, mix it in a bucket of water, and pour it in the roots. Because the issue that, was that, that had to be dealt with was systemic. It had to be taken in from the roots and come up from the inside out. I couldn't spray something on the outside and fix it. Okay? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to have our children in their affections of their heart and in their intellect that their biblical truth, biblical perspective is systemic. It's an inside-out transformation of heart, mind, soul, strength, the whole thing. Not something we spray on the outside and hope to get results. Third thing there, to be equipped academically to pursue God's calling on their life, whatever that is. You could go around the room and talk about all the different vocational callings represented in this room, and they're incredibly varied. And so God is going to call our children to a variety of places of service, a variety of settings. And so part of the, hopefully, they get during their educational experience is figuring out what am I gifted to do where do I fit in God's kingdom? Where can God most use me to advance the Great Commission in His kingdom? And, and try to figure that out. And then have them equipped academically to pursue God's calling on their life. So if they're, if, if, if they're really wired to be an engineer, then they better be someplace that's going to really gear them up in math. So how are you going to get them equipped? Second bullet point, it's a key parental decision on what's your schooling option. And in my, my copy of the notes, I've got the word parental circled. One of the interesting trends that we see over the last 40 years is that more and more children are involved in picking where they go to school. It's a very curious thing to hear a parent of a third grader talk about, we'll see which place he really wants to go. And, and when you hear that that's the approach they're taking, we hope he chooses the other school. Because <laughs> that's that thing is that's a train wreck. That's coming off the rails pretty quick. Um, because that's not the way that's supposed to work. So it is a parental decision, and there's more options than there's ever been for education. There's there's more. Uh, options out there in public schooling than there's ever been. You know, you've got charters and magnets and, and, and uh, Pope Collegiates and you've got all kinds of stuff, special academies as part of the, the effort to reduce dropouts. You've got all kinds of things out there going on to, uh, to have options uh, It's almost overwhelming. Um, and <clears throat> to try to sort through that, can be really, uh, really difficult. I think the thing that I'm passionate about is that parents actively decide what they're going to do. They don't just kind of slide into something because all their friends are doing it or because that's where they're zoned or because that's what just kind of feel that, that they really intentionally investigate what the options are and then decide what they're going to pursue. So you've got, you know, Christian schools and you've got varieties of those and you have uh, home education opportunities and you've got public school variety opportunities and all kinds of things out there. So it's got to be an intentional choice. Now the people in the back, most of the people in the back, are the people that have the munchkins. 
A lot of the people in the front are people who are who have met the objective when when uh, Dr. Huxtable turns to Claire in the Cosby Show and says, "Remember, Claire, the goal is to get them out of the house." Okay, so a lot of us up in the front of the room are are uh, free and clear. Some of the others are scattered amongst us here. I know, but but. <clears throat> There's, this, there's these major life changes that we go through. Um, remember when you thought getting married was this big life change? Those of you that are married? Um, and it was. Um, you had all those big adjustments to get used to each other. And you had all those big decisions to make. You know, Crest or Colgate, crunchy or smooth. All the big stuff. Um, how are you going to deal with those things? And you thought that was a big deal. I think the bigger change is when your first child's born. Things are different now. And you don't have as much control over your schedule. And you don't have as much control over when you sleep. If you sleep. Everything is, is uh, shifted. Then the next big change to me is when your first child starts school. Now, not only are the variables in your life imposed by this little darling, now you've got an outside institution if you're in school that's also imposing uh, uh, lifestyle decisions on you, and that's a big shift as well. So your calendar changes, your, your daily routine changes, the associations that your child has changes. There's other significant adults involved in your child's life. You can have told your first grader something over and over and over, and he goes to school and he comes home and tells you the exact same thing that his teacher said, and somehow because his teacher said it, it's golden. <laughs> and you resent this person who has upstaged you in life. Now there's a place for you to draw a picture of your face the day your oldest child started school. <laughs> How many of you drew a smiley face? How many of you drew a frowny face? How many of you drew a face with tears? We occasionally had this event at school on the first day of school. We called the Boohoo Yahoo Breakfast. <laughs> so we have some, uh, you know, stuff, little munchies to eat, and we have coffee and stuff. And so the parents drop their children off, and they come in to the cafeteria for a little social time. So I sat down one time with a parent who I assumed was a Yahoo. And after talking very briefly, I realized she was a boohoo in my astute male intuitive sensitivity. So I couldn't figure out how to get out of there fast enough. Because <laughs> to her, it was a real traumatic day. She was sending her daughter to school. and Anyway, she lived to tell the story. But... You know, we have a variety of emotions connected to that transition in our life. But it's a big shift there. So you've got to make this decision about what are you going to do, what kind of educational setting are you going to uh, employ to uh, educate your child in this 13-year run, uh, K to 12. And uh, how do you make that decision? Um, I was having lunch the other day with uh, Rich Kalai, the, the head uh, master at uh, Geneva, which we get together occasionally and commiserate and try to s swap perspectives and learn from each other. And um, 
So Richard and I were talking about that the other day. He's talking about the fact that that uh, there's so many options out there, and that every year has to be an intentional decision about what are we going to do next year, and that uh, the essential uh, component of fathers really being actively involved in the education of their children and being um, not farming that out to the mother, but really being engaged in those decisions and and making those commitments uh, every year in, in a direction that's consistent. So criteria, what's the theological and philosophical orientation of the school? What are they trying to do educationally for their students? <clears throat> and what do they hope to do? Or how are they trying to get there? And, and what's their uh, theological and philosophical orientation? Um, what are the goals for your child? And how do they fit there? Uh, different schools are better at certain things than other schools. So um, sometimes the bent of your child, the gifting of your child is evident early. Sometimes you have to have a, a broad uh, approach while you're trying to figure all that out while they work, the, while they get through school. Um, and a lot of uh, students are, are very focused on a particular pursuit. And then after, even after a year of college, uh, change and go a different direction. How many of you here that went to college changed your major at least once? Okay, so um, the idea that you know a ninth grader can kind of say, okay, I'm going to be an electrical engineer, I'm going to work on the space program, working on this particular panel on the space station, that's a little too specific, right? So you kind of have to allow for a broad opportunity to sort through that as you go through determining what those goals for your child could be. Accessibility, which includes a lot of things, location, cost, the ability of the student, the convenience, and when you get to college, can they get in? Um, and um, can, can they get into that place if that's where they think they want to go? Um, I want to talk, talk a minute about cost. Um, it's not cheap to do education well. So um, beware of educating for low bid. I often thought what it would be like to be an astronaut on top of the missile, you know, the, the rocket that's going to take you into space, and just before you launch you say, you know, this whole thing was built by low bid. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably wasn't, but... <clears throat> but it costs. Now, one thing I would encourage those of you are with the young, the young family strata here, um, sometimes um, young families can make decisions about the house they live in, the cars they drive, and those kinds of things that box them in to certain monthly payments that leave them no wiggle room that takes away their options. I think the challenge is to live on less than your means so you got some fudge factor so that you still have options. Because um, you can box yourself in uh, financially before you even have children and when your children are really little and you're not even thinking about schooling and, get, and then say, well, we can't afford that. 
because of those kinds of decisions. Okay, so I don't uh, pretend to know people's, you know, financial scenarios, and everybody that cannot uh, fund Christian school for their children, it's it's not because they're bad money managers. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that in the course of when you're very in the early years of your marriage, if you can be strategically careful to not get into fixed financial obligations of payments that take away your options for things, and it might be schooling, it might be other things in your life, but sometimes in the, in the eagerness to, uh, to have a standard of life a little quicker than your previous generation did, you can get burned on that piece. So I don't want to pound away on that, but I, I'm just, I had, I, I had a professor one time uh, in the graduate program talk to us. He was talking to a bunch of school leaders in this graduate program, and he, one of the things he said was very curious. I've never heard anybody say this. He said, you want to get a, um, a savings retirement investment situation, you want to put as much of your money in that as fast as you can, because one day you may find yourself in a situation where you're going to be pressured to compromise ethically and, and give somebody a contract for your school system or do something that you're going to find yourself where you say, i got to walk away from this place and not work here because of ethical reasons. And if you're so strapped financially that you can't afford to walk away without jeopardizing your family's well-being, you're in a tough place. So to protect your options about always being able to do your job with integrity, have something to fall back on if you have to walk away because of an ethics issue. I never heard anybody tell me that in, in all the training that I've had in educational leadership. The only guy that's ever said that before or since, but I thought it was very profound. But So you want to have some options, some wiggle room, so you can make some choices in your life um, and not box yourself in if you can help it. Everybody's situation is different. That's just a principle to think about. The role of the parent in a child's education is shaped by the educational option that's selected. So parents are the primary educators. Nobody has the influence on your children that you do. Um, and that's, uh, that's just fact. We, can, we could go there with a lot of authors and books and stuff, but we don't have time for that. No matter what option you're selecting, there are complementary and compensatory actions required by parents. So parental engagement is critical. You, when that child hits school, you can't just kind of keep going along the same rhythm of life that you always have. You just say, well, now they're going to school, but my work habits, the time I work, the time I spend doing different things is going to stay the same, just I just have to drop them off every day. If there are certain things that happen at your school that are complementary to what you're doing in your home. There are certain things that happen at school that you have to compensate or that are missing at school that you have to compensate at home. I was talking with a parent a couple years ago who's trying to decide, can I make the investment to send my children to Christian school or am I going to go ahead and, and go for a, a public school option that he had? And so I said, well, the first thing is, let's not think in terms of... Um, Let's, let's always remember that you, there's always has to make adjustments no matter where your child goes to school. So if he goes to Christian school, you say, well, I'm going to have to work more hours to make more money to pay for tuition. So, okay. But there's some things you won't have to do. If you, if you save that and you go in a situation where, where God is not a part of their education every day, then you've got to build into your schedule what I'm going to do to compensate for that. 
how am I going to, what are we going to read together as father and child that's going to give a biblical worldview um, position on the things that they're studying in school? If they're not going to get it in the classroom, then how do I as a parent compensate for that by what I do with my child? I said, there's no free lunch here. There's no, life just kind of goes on like it always has been. When, you're, when your child starts school, you do some things that are complementary based on that school's approach to dealing with your child, and you have some things that you compensate for. Okay? So, um, you, you have to kind of figure out what setting, what's missing, or what maybe even oppositional to what you're trying to teach at home, and how you're going to compensate and work through those, those issues. Um, it's not just the same, it doesn't just look like it did before you had a child in school. Things change. All right, change your headphones on your philosopher hat now for a few minutes. I snatched a few PowerPoint slides from uh, in-service uh, training that I do on the philosophy of Christian school education to think to, for these philosophical pieces. So that's why this is a little choppy. This is about 10 minutes out of three hours. So work with me on this. <coughs> the, the purpose of education, and some of these comments are... Um, from Donovan Graham's book, Teaching Redemptively. Uh, Graham was a professor at Covenant College for years and years and um, wrote a really good book on uh, redemptive uh, approach to education. Education is not an end in itself. It's a means to develop a response to our calling in life. It's a means to develop a response to our calling in life. The task of true education is to develop the knowledge of God, his creative reality, and to use that knowledge in exercising a creative, redemptive dominion over the world in which we live. So we are made to have a dominion. You can read that in the cultural mandate in the early chapters of Genesis. Um, we're to have dominion. Now, whether that's uh, your child's having dominion over his toys, dealing with the sharing issue, or dealing with... Uh, <coughs> putting them away or getting them out or dealing with uh, dominion over their soccer or we're, we're just wired to have dominion um, and to to uh, rule over things to to order our uh, creation and and uh, he's talking about the knowledge of God the created reality that the creation that's all around us how do we use the knowledge we have to exercise this creative redemptive dominion over the world so we're uh, redeeming, involved redemptively in the world. Uh, we're always pushing back against the fall. Anybody pull weeds yesterday? You're pushing back. You know, um, stuff had to discipline your child in the last two or three weeks, once or twice. Pushing back against the fall. Creative, redemptive dominion. Biblical worldview is the goal. We want our children to have a biblical worldview of uh, a way to look at the world. Uh, this comment from James Shire, a set of worldview is a set of presuppositions or assumptions which we hold consciously or subconsciously about the basic makeup of the world. One of the things that you do in education is you try to take the subconscious presuppositions and move them to the conscious. So you have presuppositions that you don't even know about. Okay? 
and, and we do as teachers, and we do as individuals, uh, you walk into a store and you look at a clerk and you've never met them, you've never seen them before, you've never been on the store before, but you look at them and you have an opinion about how helpful they're going to be before you've even opened your mouth. You have kind of a presupposition based on what you see. You, you have an idea. Um, <clears throat> so you have certain um, presuppositions about life and about creation and about God and all these things. Biblical worldview defined bottom left. Nancy Piercy, Total Truth, which is the best book I think I would recommend about worldview, but you've got to be up for the task. It's about like yay thick. It's really, really good. I've got another one if you don't want to take Piercy on. Might be more your speed. <laughs> Give you that one. Um, she says that a biblical worldview is a biblically informed perspective on all reality. A mental map that tells us how to navigate the world effectively. The imprint of God's objective truth on our inner life. So when I think about navigating the world effectively, I think about whitewater rafting. You're getting around the rapids, the waterfalls. There are some periods of calm, but there are some periods of rough. There are some places you can get flipped. And how are you going to navigate the world effectively? Uh, the, the biblical perspective allows you to help keep the big things big and the little things little and to know where the rocks are and to know where the, the uh, challenges are. Biblical worldview defined, last one from uh, planting a, um, thinking Christianly does not come naturally, has to be learned, it's intentional. Um, and no matter where your children go to school, this is part of what we're trying to do to educate our children. And, and, and it, it just for whole, the whole way we run our family, the whole way we, we uh, model Christianity before them, it, everything's an educational experience. So it has to be intentionally planned to do that. Um, without the lens of Scripture to correct and enlarge our vision, we see the world with a self-referential bias. I love that phrase. We see the world with a self-referential bias. When you were in eighth grade, your mother told you, and you were amazed at how she just didn't get it, but she said something to you like this. The world does not revolve around you. <laughs> you were stunned that a woman of your mother's age and maturity could be so misguided as to not understand that the world said the world does not revolve around you. But it's a bigger issue than that. It's that we're the reference point by which we assess things. So if I think it's right, it's right. If you think it's wrong, I think it's right, it's right. You know, it's a self-referential bias. So without the lens of Scripture to clean that up, we easily distort things. Um, unified view of knowledge. Um, truth is about total reality. Uh, the Kuiper quote that we've all heard many, many times. Uh, one square inch on the whole plane of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not proclaim. This is mine. Schaefer um, said Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural. Truth spelled with a capital T. Truth about total reality. Not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality, the intellectual holding of that truth, and then living in the light of that truth. So you're not just, you're not just thinking Christianly, you're living Christianly. So Nicholas Wolterstorff said the object is not just Christian thought, 
its Christian life. So, <clears throat> the biggest uh, challenge to this whole knowledge piece, the question of epistemology, how do we know what we know, is uh, Piercy says, the most serious challenge we face today, there's this false dichotomy in the view of knowledge between heart, brain, secular, sacred science, and religion. This was characterized by uh, Schaefer in this upper story, lower story model that you can see in the pictures there. Um, that you have this divided view of knowledge, and you see this every day. I was going to look at the paper, for example, so today I just didn't have time because they're there almost every day. Where you see uh, this private sphere of personal preference in this domain, and then lower story is this stuff that everybody agrees on as being true. Okay? This public sphere kind of scientific knowledge stuff. And the stuff that's the private sphere things, that's not really authoritative, that's just kind of preference. So if you go down to the bottom left, religion is not an objective truth in that worldview to which we submit only a matter of personal taste, which we choose. Paper or plastic. What do you want? So um, this fact-value split thing. So the values are a matter of individual choice. Facts are binding on everyone. So this, this little uh, subtle... Division uh, voids the opportunity of you having an objective standard of truth um, in the mix here. So uh, morality, if you think this is okay, then um, when you don't have a, a standard, a fixed standard, then that becomes matters of choice. And that, if you don't, if you're not mutually submissive to the to a commonly held standard, then um, who prevails? The person with the power. So uh, that's why, even if you're not a Christian, you can impose your will on your children because you are bigger and stronger. For a brief period of your life, you're faster. <laughs> but um, it's about. Uh, power. So um, that's a, that's a challenge piece there. <clears throat> Value versus facts. So in today's world, this two-story thing, the postmodern piece of whatever is truth for you is truth for you, but not necessarily truth for me. And um, then you have this objective, universally valid. There's not a an understanding that that moral truth is just as inflexible as the uh, mathematics and physics of building the Howard Franklin Bridge. I want them to have a pretty narrow view of truth when I drive over that bridge. You know, but they say, well, that's a different kind of knowledge. This stuff about morality and spiritual stuff, that's not really as exact. You know, it's not as precise or it's not as firm. And that's uh, uh, not a biblical perspective on truth at all. Uh, Biblical epistemology there. Piercy says again that this whole split of thinking is the single most weapon, single most potent weapon for delegitimizing the biblical perspective in the public square today. So the politician says, I believe abortion is wrong, but who am I to impose that on the society? Um, you know, or pick some other thing that's legal but not moral. Um, It seems to delegitimize the biblical perspective. So it takes intentional effort to try to address those, bring every thought captive, those things. And it takes hard work. That's the part that 
I think one of the things that's frustrating to me about um, young people that aren't particularly well-grounded in their faith and get to a college somewhere and they get a few things thrown at them that they hadn't heard before, and rather than doing the hard work of researching the question and finding the answers that are really there, it's easier just to bail. I don't want to work that hard, so I'm just going to chuck it. And um, <clears throat> Piercy says, we should expect the process of developing a Christian worldview to be a difficult and painful struggle, first inwardly as we uproot the idols in our own thought, then outwardly as we face the hostility of a fallen and unbelieving world. Our strength for the task must come from spiritual union with Christ, recognizing that suffering is the route to being conformed to him and remade in his image. Al Green uh, wrote, he talked about helping students grow in reconciliation of creation and redemption. And the last paragraph on the last slide there, they need to know the academic information commonly taught in school, but they need to know it in the context of its true meaning, which is that it reveals God and calls for a response to him. <clears throat> so there's a little philosophy for you in terms of the biblical worldview and trying to fight against this whole tension that we feel between people who would like to split knowledge into two different layers, a layer that's non-binding opinion, and then the other layer of real fact, and split those two things apart. And Christ is preeminent over everything. And he is a source of all truth. And to think that you can slice it and dice it and take the things that God has revealed to us as being absolute and put them in the category of opinion and suggestion is ludicrous. And um, so as we... As we educate our children in the whole arena of educating them, we have the school piece, the home piece, everything they're getting from the culture, the religion of them all, everything that exposes them to different worldviews. Um, we have to marshal everything in our power to help them frame their thinking to a biblical worldview and to... Um, Everything they do every day, all day long, educates them. And so it's a bigger issue than the school issue, though the school issue is 17,000 hours from age 5 to 17, which is a pretty big chunk of time, uh, but it's not all their time. So I asked some teachers. I said, I asked them three questions. I said, what are some positive practices that you see in parents that really, you think these parents are really effective and you watch them do their thing as a parent and what do they do that's impressive? Then I asked them, uh, what do you see that uh, is a troubling pattern? We're not going to talk about that list today. And then I said, if you could give them one piece of advice, what would you give them? This is about uh, 25 or 30 teachers that um, I asked to respond to those questions. And then I went over those and I picked my David Letterman top ten. <laughs> there were patterns. There, there were several of these that were repeated multiple times. And um, I thought they were interesting. So positive practices. These are not rank ordered by a number of times they were mentioned. Faithfulness in family and corporate worship came up a lot. About um, being able to tell the you know, the people that these students were prayed for and prayed with and prayed over. And Number two is intriguing. It said, model a grateful spirit, a thankful spirit. There's a bunch of research that's been going on the last few years about um, 
spiritual formation in students, particularly um, K-12 students, and what traits are um, the ones that most highly correlate with, from what you can tell, and it's not an exact science, on the kids that seem to be in the right direction spiritually. And, and the, the common denominator was a grateful spirit, a, spirit, a sense of gratitude rather than a sense of you owe me. Um, model a grateful spirit. So when you're working with your children, educating your child, model a grateful spirit. Uh, number three, I can't say enough to uh, parents of children, especially primary grade children. Read to and with your child daily. No one reads enough in school. No one spends enough minutes reading in school to become a good reader. You'd like them to come home sometime. We can't keep them that long. But reading, reading to them, reading with them, reading before they even can know the words, sitting there flipping pages of a book with a child before he can even utter a word or know what he's looking at, those are important in their development. It's, it's huge. Um, allow children to make mistakes and learn from them. Put a star by that one. <coughs> learn from natural consequences. Uh, culturally right now, we have a, a you, you people that are parents of young children have a real difficult challenge because the culture's telling you that your children should always be happy. They should always have high self-esteem. I'll get started on that later. That's, that's not a Sunday school class, that's a weekend retreat. <laughs> um, and so there's this there's unwillingness to let them blow it and feel it and uh, and not succeed uh, and the, the necessity of allowing them to make mistakes and learn from natural consequences is so important um, you know I talked to a father uh, this weekend, he, this is a child out of college, out of high school. He said he had a crash and burn experience. He said, I could see it coming for six months. But I knew I needed to let it happen and then learn, you know, help him learn through it. That's hard to do. Uh, but, but letting them um, have the natural consequence uh, when you can without you know, endangering their life uh, is so important. Value routine. They have a place and a time for homework. It's part of the routine of life. Just like putting your pajamas on, brushing your teeth, going to bed. You know, all those things we do at the same time. And uh, I thought six was, six was almost amusing, but when a kid gets in the car, don't be talking on the cell phone. After you've ignored the third sign in the pickup line at your school that says don't use your cell phone to pick up line. <laughs> so, you know, look at them. Talk to them. How was your day? Tell them to take the earbuds out of their ears. You turn off your cell phone and talk. <laughs> we had a coach one time uh, who didn't let his players bring anything with earphones on any of their road trips. Said, sorry, you're going to have to talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs> After some games, he probably handed out the earbuds. But 
Number seven, uh, be involved but don't hover. Helicopter parents, new term now, backpack parent. Remember when your junior high child wanted, or middle school child wanted to take them to the mall but didn't want you to be with them at the mall, so you had to stay 100 yards away. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't need you till they asked for the credit card. So um, don't hover. Let them you know, encourage independence. This will involve failure, C number seven, at age-appropriate levels. More concerned with accomplishment and real learning than honor rolls and awards. <coughs> I think some of those honor roll and awards are a bigger deal to parents than they are to kids. So you're going to have to lay down that idol. I can show you a box, two boxes of trophies in my garage. I have no idea what to do with for my children. They're taking up space. They're, they don't mean anything. Um, <clears throat> beware of that. Allow children to be children. Uh, play is a big deal. Play, play, play. Unstructured play is huge in the development of young children. Don't schedule them out the wazoo for everything under the sun. They need to play. Little boys need to dig holes. Give a boy a patch of dirt and a shovel, he's good for an hour. <laughs> you know, save your money, just give him a shovel. Um, my three-year-old grandson, uh, three hours. Pile of mulch, plastic wheelbarrow, shovel. <laughs> House full of toys. Pile of mulch. <laughs> <laughs> Advice, get more sleep. I think one of the major maladies we're dealing with in education today is sleep-deprived children. If you have enough sleep deprivation, academically you begin to perform as if you had a learning disability. A lot of research on that. Do they need therapists? Do they need sleep? Sleep's cheaper. <laughs> Early bedtimes are for parents. Limit activities. Most children are overscheduled. Don't make the mistake of saying I'm going to their game. We'll count that as family time. If they're out on the field and you're in the stands, that's not family time. You're showing interest, you're supporting and all that stuff, but don't chalk that up as quality time with your child. You know, because your little league coach has already told you when they're on my side of the fence, leave them alone. So be there, support them, but don't mistake that as, as if you had these deep conversations about meaningful things. <clears throat> Speak positively about the authorities in front of your children. Teachers, coaches, pastors, you know, you should never have fried preacher for lunch on Sunday. You know, and um, they need to hear you be positive about those people. If you have criticisms about those people, talk about them with your spouse. Talk about them to the people involved, but don't talk about it in front of your child. Um, how to keep your balance. Number five is a big deal. We do that, and there's only two of us in our home. Every Sunday night, sit down with the calendar, try to get expectations aligned for the coming week. Uh, that's a critical practice. Go to the Valenis, look at the big white board in the kitchen. <coughs> you got that many, you got to be better coordinated. You got in trouble. <coughs> I was on there one night looking to make sure I didn't have anything I was supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> I was there for dinner. I didn't know what that involved. <laughs> but, uh, man, have it. Uh, have a plan. 
Eat supper together. Nobody's allowed to bring electronics to the table. No cell phones. No iPads. No whatevers. <clears throat> Allow the child to fail. There's a recurring theme here. Have you picked up on that? When the cost is low to avoid expensive lessons later. I benched a child, uh, suspended a guy for a game in seventh grade basketball in my coaching previous life. You thought I had taken away his whole future. That was an ugly, ugly event with uh, the parent. And uh, the child didn't learn a thing. You know, because then kept getting kicked off and suspended from games all the way through. Never finished a high school career. We tried to teach him something in seventh grade when it was relatively cheap. A game in seventh grade. You know? <clears throat> but it was disaster later. Um, learn it when it's cheap. Add chores each year. Know the child's ability level. Don't keep pushing and punishing when unrealistic expectations go unmet. Some children are um, trying to figure out, you know, how are they wired? What are they good at? What can they do? What can't they do? You can paddle me till the cows come home, and I'm not going to be great at certain academic areas. I don't care how much you threaten me, take away my toys, give me time out, time in, whatever. Not going to happen. Uh, be wise. <clears throat> Discipline with gentle firmness, don't nag. You can see that. Some people just nag. They don't ever really come down with a consequence. They just complain to their child about their behavior. But they don't ever have a definitive consequence. <coughs> then, you know, this happens. So <clears throat> that's some perspectives from some people that I think are very wise. That uh, may be something in there that you may think about with your children. All right, two pieces of research. <clears throat> I know we can do this in nine minutes, but we'll do some of it. We'll probably have to save one of them. Let's talk about marshmallows. Um, the research study of this presupposes the idea that children like marshmallows, okay? That's a, that's a critical presumption that children like marshmallows, okay? So, you have uh, preschool children, four-year-olds or so, hand them out marshmallows, and then you tell them, if you can wait 15 minutes before you eat that marshmallow, we'll give you a second marshmallow. All right? So, I observe the children. And uh, some of them, they can't hack it. I mean, oh, God. <laughs> some of the rest of them, they got it behind them so they can't see it. They're whistling, singing songs, putting it in their pocket, walking around, trying not to think about the fact they've got this really good marshmallow that they're not eating. They're waiting around, waiting around, waiting. So the time elapsed is up, and they bring in the next bag of marshmallows, and they start handing them out to everybody who still had their marshmallow. The children have ate theirs one and one. No. <laughs> so, some of these children showed a um, capacity for delayed gratification in their preschool years. Okay? So fast forward. Um, Longitudinal study, uh, 12 years later, same group of kids, um, control for the variables, all that stuff they do. Um, their ability to delay gratification 
Um, at the end of the at the end of the day, the conclusion was that uh, delayed gratification was twice as powerful as intellectual ability in determining <coughs> academic success. Did you hear that? That rocked me when I read that. The ability to delay gratification was twice as powerful a predictor of academic success as intelligence. So, this doesn't mean you play sadistic mind games with your children. <laughs> There's a brownie, but wait five minutes before you eat it. <laughs> I helped train a dog like that one time. I wouldn't recommend it for humans. But <clears throat> the point is, um, the capacity to wait, the capacity to put off what feels good to do what you have to do. I was telling the senior this week, I said, you know what a college degree tells an employer? That you had the ability to do what you had to do whether you wanted to do it or not, by when you had to do it, and complete it. So if you can show them that you have that kind of character, they'll teach you the job. But if you can't do that, they don't need you. So that's one of the things that you hope to pick up in schooling, is the ability to do what you got to do, whether you want to do it or not, by when you have to do it, and the way you have to do it. And you can, you can set aside what you'd rather be doing in order to do that first. So that's something that can be almost, in a lot of ways, better taught in the home than can be taught in the school. I watched a teacher. Uh, I was in a classroom in April one time, third grade classroom, good teacher. And I'm in this classroom watching, and, and um, these children raise their hand. And if she didn't call them in about... 10 or 15 seconds, they just start talking as if they'd been called on. And so uh, I thought, man, this is weird. This is like the stuff you work out, you know, back in September. So in an, in an unusual display of uh, professional reservation and caution, when the teacher came in to meet with me after the observation in the classroom, she said, what do you think of my class? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, they don't wait very well, do they? <laughs> I said, she said, two-thirds of my class is either only child or youngest child. <laughs> They're not used to waiting for service. They're used to it happening right now when they want it to happen. I was talking with a graduate last night. She was comparing the cost of her wedding dress to the cost of her youngest sister's uh, dress for a junior senior banquet. I'm kind of remarking that the, those numbers were strikingly close. <laughs> and the fact that the baby gets all the breaks, you know. Um, but the, um, the waiting piece is a big deal in terms of academic success. It's a big deal in life that you can postpone what is fun or feels good to do what you got to do first. And I think all that opportunity we have to teach that as we're educating our children at home in terms of you have to do this chore before you can do X, you know, or you have to do whatever. It's a, it's a really powerful thing. And, um, <clears throat> and you can figure out how to, how to pull that off. Um, the other one I have to do a praise, and we'll have to say that because it's a more uh, long uh, situation, but it's very powerful in terms of the way we praise children. And a lot of the ways we praise children 
uh, have uh, considerable negative academic effect. And uh, they'll have to come back in two weeks to hear how to avoid that. But um, there's some things on research about praise that are really intriguing. Um, if you want to get a jump on it, um, Google uh, Carolyn Dweck. I think is how you spell it. Um, I'll read some of her stuff ahead. It's fascinating. But um, <clears throat> I think it's D-W-E-C-K. And uh, find out some intriguing things, like there's no correlation between high self-esteem and academic performance, for instance. Um, so <clears throat> high self-esteem is not the answer. <clears throat> Yeah, who really has high self-esteem or are gang leaders of gangs. Yeah, right. <laughs> Very high self-esteem. So there's an aspiration for you. Pursue that one. But um, anyway, that's a few thoughts on a very broad subject. Maybe something in there you can be helped by. I have uh, two copies of What is a Christian Worldview? Basics of the Reformed Faith, uh, written by Philip Graham Riken. Uh, we use this in our teacher interview process. If uh, first two to grab them are welcome to them. And we'll close with that. Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness to us. We thank you for the children that you've entrusted to us in our families and our church. And uh, <clears throat> we pray that we would be faithful in helping them not only think Christianly, but to love Jesus and to love you with all their heart. And that their, uh, not only their intellect, but their affections would be turned toward you uh, for life. Help us to be alert to our own practices, the words that we say, the things that we model, that we would be used of you to uh, encourage this process for your glory and the good of our children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>